clearest gospel in the Old Testament. That, that's a big statement. That, that's, uh, hmm, hmm. The clearest gospel in the Old Testament. Now, I want to think through, just as we open, some definitions. Because when we say gospel, we all tend to just think good news. And that's what gospel means, is uh, good news. But when we're talking about not just a Greek word, good news, thank you, Jude, but the gospel of the Word of God, it's the saving good news of the person, offices, and work of Jesus Christ. Let me say it again, and then we'll pray. The saving good news of the person, offices, and work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray as we go to the Lord for His Word. Open our eyes that we may see wonderful things in your law. Oh God, if you don't come and give revelation by your Spirit, Lord, we're not going to be affected like we ought to in the truth. Oh God, illuminate our minds, stir up holy affections, and change us from glory to glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So the saving good news of the person, the God-man, offices his prophet, priest, and king, redeemer, and the work of Jesus Christ. That's what we're looking at. Now, it's really important that we trust in the gospel, because as you know, dear saints, you're, you're well theologically educated in the truth, that if we don't trust in the gospel, we've missed the mark. And, uh, and if we don't use that as our compass, we're going to get, help me, lost, right? And speaking of compass and getting lost, I want to share with you a little story. It's about a rookie hunter up in Minnesota where there's been a lot of mountains and, and uh, deer and such. And this rookie hunter asked his friend, who was a very experienced hunter, to uh, take him hunting with him. And he said, sure. So they went up in the mountains. They went to the cabin. Uh, next morning, they got up to, uh, to go up on the mountain and, and go hunting. Well, they drove up to the spot, up the long dirt road, and then at the end was a cul-de-sac. And then the experienced hunter said, oh, I forgot my gun. And he goes, i got to go back to the cabin. And it was about 20 minutes back. And uh, the rookie hunter was very excited. I mean, he was ready to jump out of the car. Woo! And uh, he says, the rookie hunter says, well, I'm just going to get out and go walk around and see if I can find a deer. And the experienced hunter is like, whoa, you get lost real easy around here. It's very foresty. And, 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 and the rookie hunter is like, no, no, no. I have a compass at the end of my staff. I'll be fine. They said, okay. So, got out. Experienced hunter went down the hill. Rookie hunter checked his compass, saw that uh, the actual car was due south, and saw how it all lined up, and then he started off. He went down and up and down and up, and, and it was very, very woodsy. 
just climbing through trees at one point. At one point, he was climbing through so many trees, he thought to himself, this is miserable. So he turned around and said, I'm going back to the car. So he turned around to go back to the car, and then he looked up and thought he knew where he was going, and then he said, I should check my compass. He looked down and checked his compass, and his compass said something very different than what he thought. So he thought to himself, nah, I'm not going to trust this compass. It must be broken. And he kept going the way he thought was going to be to the car. Well, he was only about seven minutes from the car originally. Well, about probably 30 minutes went by. And, uh, and thankfully, the rookie hunter went close enough to the vehicle in the forest that the experienced hunter got to see him down a ravine. And he said, hey, knucklehead, what are you doing out there? Get back here. So the rookie hunter was very thankful. Wow, he thought he was lost in the forest and in big trouble. So he ran back to the car and, uh, and the experienced hunter went on to use that to to hammer him and mock him for the rest of his life. It was a wonderful opportunity. But the rookie honey hunter learned something through that. You have to trust your compass. You really have to trust. You can't lean on your own understanding. And so we look back in the scriptures and biblical history, we see the Jews, Israel, often didn't trust their compass, the compass of the gospel. And it got so bad at one point, they even twisted their grace through faith in the promised Messiah religion and live out the law by faith into a complete works religion by the time Christ came. Because they lost their compass. Jesus said, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. He said, no, these are the scriptures that testify about me. You refuse to come to me to have life. They miss the promised Messiah in the Old Testament. Even though, as we're going to see, there's such a clear and wonderful revelation of the suffering servant in the scriptures. And so as Christians, we can also forget that we don't just need Jesus for our salvation, but we need Jesus for our, help me, sanctification in daily lives. We don't just need the gospel to be saved, but we need the gospel and our Lord through the gospel to live a successful life of faith and love. Help us, Lord. I want to remind you of something you've probably read many times. Let's go back to Isaiah 52:13 through chapter 53 and we're just going to walk through it and see how clear this gospel is in the Old Testament. There's the book of Isaiah is just amazing. There's four servant songs in Isaiah. This is the fourth. It's about the suffering servant to come. Um, the book of Isaiah was written for both the judgment 
and discipline of the nation of Israel because of their sin and the promises and grace and victory for them to trust in of the Messiah. So it has a, a, a dual-fold purpose in its uh, original intention. Many scholars believe that this portion of Isaiah is the clearest gospel in the entire Old Testament in one packaged form. It's actually quoted, just this chapter, seven times in the New Testament. Seven times. So let's dig in. Isaiah 52, 13 through 53. He starts out, Behold, or see, pay attention. My servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. So first, he gives us a, a summary of the successful mission that the suffering servant, the Messiah, will accomplish. He says, see, my servant will act prudently or wisely. As we know, Jesus Christ was going to fulfill all righteousness. He said, I always do the will of my Father who sent me. So he had perfect wisdom and knowledge. As a matter of fact, in Christ is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He said, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised. It's resurrection. And lifted up. That's ascension. And highly exalted. That's his coronation. Wow. So it gives us a summary that God's promised Messiah, our suffering servant, would be victorious in his mission. He would fulfill all righteousness. And he would be raised and lifted up and coronated for the salvation of his people. But now it's going to contrast his glorious exaltation with the agony of sufferings. And look how clear it is. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, horrified, disgusted, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness. Jesus from the garden, standing before the priests, to being beaten by the temple guards, to being tortured by the Roman soldiers, smashed on his face repetitively with a mock staff, had his beard pulled out, spit in his face, struck with fists, crucified. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness. I think that um, the passion of the Christ, if you've seen that and you've seen the agony of the face of the actor who played Christ in that, I think that was probably very close to reality how just beaten and, and battered he was. Barely alive. Couldn't even carry his own cross. You say, well, why would Jehovah God the Son do that? Well, it tells us in the next verse, gives us a little taste of that. So will he sprinkle many nations. He did it not for his own sake, 
but for our sake, the cleansing, the sprinkling of many nations, not just Israel, many nations, that's us. The sprinkling, the washing away of our sin. Solely sprinkle many nations. And another purpose, there was a dual purpose, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. Jesus came for both salvation, to be the Savior, and because we reject him, to be the judge. And kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. It's all going to be revealed in the end. And what they have not heard, they will understand. The suffering servant came to agonize and pay the price for our sins completely. He came as a substitute to take the punishment we deserve. And he did it in fullness. And and we would say, well, who would believe that Jehovah God the Son is going to become a man and allow people to torture him? And that's why he says the next verse. Who has believed our message? Right? Paul said to 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 the Greeks, this is foolishness. Right? To those who seek their wives in their own eyes, a God who suffers in place of his people? What? Who has believed our message? Who would believe such a thing? And then he answers it. In the rest of the verse. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? (laughs) Praise the Lord. He reveals truth. Hallelujah. Now we get a little picture of the humility of Jesus. He, Jesus, grew up before him, the Father, like a tender shoot. Think about a shoot coming out of the bottom of a tree. Just the tender little little beginning of that tree or plant. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Jesus Christ was a common, humble man of his time. Like a root out of dry ground. Picture that. Like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. And not just was he humble and unassuming, but he was despised. He was hated and rejected by men. He told the truth. He confronted people with truth. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows. And familiar with suffering. He had deep compassion and empathy for people. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Can you remember anybody who did this? I don't know. Hid their face from... I don't know. Is one of his best friends, Peter. Wow. He knew what it was like to be betrayed. He knew what it was like to be totally abandoned by his closely 
loved best friends. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. He knew what was going to happen to the people who rejected him. He knew they were going to suffer an eternal torment in both his human mind and, of course, his omniscient divine mind. But he knew, and it grieved him. He wept over Jerusalem. He wept over people who were going to crucify him. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. And it gives us a little identifier. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Surely he identified himself perfectly through healing all that were brought to him with infirmities and sorrows. As many who were brought to him, he healed. It said over and over again in the text, in the Gospels. He, I, he perfectly fulfilled the prophecies. Surely he took up our infirmities, our carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted, like he was being punished for his own sin against God. That's what he was accused of, claiming to be a king and blaspheming God. They accused him of blasphemy. Blasphemy. And because of that, they wanted him stoned, and they couldn't stone him. So they wanted to bring him to Pilate and have him approve of crucifixion. They thought he was dying for his own sin. Because they didn't believe the words of Jesus. But he was pierced. But the truth is, he was pierced, verse 5, for our transgressions. He was crushed by the weight of the wrath of God for our iniquities. I want to talk about that just for, just for a couple minutes. He was pierced. His hands and his feet were pierced to be hung up on the cross. And while he was on the cross, God the Father poured down his wrath and holy hatred and justice and judgment on his own son. Because he saw his son, the Father saw his son, as if he had committed all of our sins. All of our sins, past, present, and future, that were credited to his spiritual bank account and laid upon his shoulders. And God the Father poured down his wrath and anger and holy hatred and judgment on his own son. He was crushed. The physical pain and torture was agonizing, but it was nothing compared to the spiritual torture of the wrath of God. Hell on his own body and soul for six hours. That's why Jesus begged the Father to let this come pass from him. That's why he sweat blood with such terrors that today that only happens with people who are being led to the death chamber. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Why? The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. <laughs> wow. Well, the 
punishment that brought us peace, full atonement, full payment for sins, was upon Him. And by His wounds, we are healed. Dear friends, if you're trusting in Jesus today, all of your sins, past, present, and future, have been paid for. It is finished. You will never stand before God and be judged for your sins. As a matter of fact, the Scripture says you will stand before Him without fault, blameless, and with great joy. Wow! Jude 24, Ephesians 5, 25-27, 1 Corinthians 1, 7-9, blameless. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him. And by His wounds, we are healed. <laughs> then it takes us back to our undeserved. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. That's true. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the Lord has laid upon Him the iniquity, the sin of us all. Wow. He was despised and rejected. He was unjustly judged. He was oppressed. He was taken away falsely and wickedly. Yet the Lord laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted. He was unjustly judged and tortured. Yet He did not open His mouth. He didn't defend Himself. He didn't tell them how wrong they were and show them the 12 different angles of their incorrect accusations. He could have done that as an expert attorney. In Him is in all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He didn't do that. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shears is silent, so He did not open His mouth. He only spoke what the Father told Him to speak. Pilate said, Are you the king? Jesus said, You are right in saying, I am a king. In fact, for this purpose I came into the world. But my kingdom is not of this world. He only defended himself, so to speak. He only spoke the word that the Father told him to do. Instead of going on for hours with orations of true defense. By oppression and judgment... Cruel, unjust judgment, he was taken away. And then it says, and who can speak of his descendants? He was given the death sentence. And who could speak of his family on earth? It was a curse, so to speak, in the Jews' mind, not to have a wife and children and carry on your line, your lineage. Jesus didn't have a wife and babies. Who can speak of his descendants? He was considered cursed of God. And then it says, for he was cut off from the land of the living. He was murdered. Man's purpose was evil. 
Man's purpose was because he wanted the power and the authority and the wealth of the Jewish ruling aristocracy, and they weren't about to give it up. So they murdered this, so to speak, king of the Jews, they said. Mm. He was cut off from the land of the living. He was murdered. And then you say, well, wait a minute. It was God's purpose too. And I say, amen. That's why the next part of the verse says, for the transgression of my people, he was stricken. He was cut off. He was murdered. Right? What God sovereignly planned and brought about, as it says in Acts 2.23, Paul said, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. It was God's plan of redemption. But he said, but you, with the hands of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. You say it was God's sovereign purpose and God arranged it and governed it to get there. They can't be responsible. Well, of course they can. We have to remember, saints, that even though we hold to God's utter sovereignty, man's responsibility is always biblical. And so is angelic responsibility. You can never separate those two completely from reality. You can make distinctions... God's sovereign purpose will prevail, but man is always responsible. Verse 9, he was assigned a grave with the wicked. In those days when they crucified people, they pulled them down from the cross and threw them in a mass grave. Because they crucified a lot of people. And that's what the plan was, just to throw Jesus in a mass grave with absolutely no dignity or honor or respect at all. But God had different plans. So it says, and with the rich in his death. He was buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, a rich man's tomb. Never been used. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Jesus was sinless. Even Pontius Pilate said four or five times, I find no guilt in this man. I find no guilt in this man. He kept saying it. And he was persuaded. Mm. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. He was sinless. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. It was God's sovereign will and plan to crush His own Messiah, His own Son, and cause Him to suffer, to pay the price for our sins completely. He bore the weight of the wrath of God. He bore hell for us and satisfied God's offended justice for our sins completely. Jesus said, it is finished. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Resurrection. (laughs) 
Oh, resurrection. Glory. After the suffering of his soul, again, resurrection, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. Resurrection. He looked at the joy set before him in the future. Through that, he looked at that and endured the cross. Hebrews 12.2. Despising the shame. Such a clear gospel. And look, it even tells us now to transition of the benefits. Because we say, well, we believe that for salvation. But I'm good now. I'm saved. I know I'm saved. I'm assured of it. I want to remind you, dear saints, that Christ didn't stay in the grave. And, and when he was resurrected, he didn't just stay on earth. He would be raised and lifted up and highly exalted, coronated, to send the Holy Spirit to govern over everything. God has raised this Jesus to life, to coronate and crown him, to govern over everything for the salvation of those that the Father has given him. He is the heir to the throne that Adam forfeited. He inherited the earth. We need Him as our resurrected, coronated Lord to give us grace, to have courage, and faith that is strong, and to have peace and forgiveness. The, the feelings of it, they matter. He will cleanse our hearts from a guilty conscience. He ever lives to intercede for us. Let's look at that. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. There's justification, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. That's the inheritance. That's adoption. We've been adopted in our through our union with Christ. He's our not just our Lord, but our bigger brother, Hebrews 2 says. And in union with him, we are in the family of God. We are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. We have inherited legally now all that Christ has inherited. <laughs> Therefore, I will give him a portion, an inheritance, the idea is there in the Hebrew, among the great. And he will divide the spoils with the strong. Wow, do you hear that, saints? We are co-heirs with Christ. We are called great in him and strong in him. He's our king. Our king is omnipotent, all-powerful King Jesus. We have omnipotent strength to tap into through the word of God, through the promises, through the gospel. And everything as coheres with Christ, the Christ is purchased, we have too. All things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are of Christ. And Christ is of God, Paul says. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many 
and made intercession for the transgressors. He ever lives to intercede for us. He's not just our king and heir of all things on the throne, but he ever lives to intercede for us. You say, sometimes, Jimbo, I really feel sinful, and I don't even feel worthy to come to God on my own. And I would say, well, you're not. You're not on your own. Hebrews 7.25, Therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Your defense attorney is Jesus. 1 John 2, 1 and 2, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. An advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. We have righteousness that is never far from the throne of God, but always at his right hand. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. There's elect all throughout the world. No matter where you're at, you can come to the one who ever lives to intercede for you. Sometimes when I'm out evangelizing, I do it a couple times a week and every week. So sometimes it gets monotonous. I struggle with my flesh. And sometimes on a hard day, uh, I have... You know, ten people in a row that maybe some of them take a track and say thanks and walk off. But I have sometimes ten people in a row that don't want to stop and talk to me about the gospel. And sometimes I get people who are flat out nasty and antagonistic. Sometimes I struggle with, with discouragement. And, and uh, I have to go to my great high priest. I have to go to Christ and ask Him to cleanse my heart from a guilty conscience for getting anxious and thinking wrongly and being discouraged over things. It's not my job to save anybody. I'm supposed to, by faith and in love, present the gospel. So I have to go to my Lord Jesus. He ever lives to intercede for you. He ever lives to reign over all things for the greatest display of the the glory of God and the good of the church. And that great display of the glory of God is going to include, I know it's hard, but God's justice and God's wrath and judgment. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are the smell of death, to the other the fragrance of life and and who is equal to such a task. So I have to remember Christ is reigning and ruling over all things for the greatest display of the glory of God and for the good of the church. And when I'm struggling, I, just as you, need to tap in in our minds to our compass and get our bearings refocused. And stop leaning on our own understanding and thinking we can find the way. That's before you know it, some gracious pastor might have to come up about and see us down the road bobbling over in the jungle and say, Hey, Douglas! 
knucklehead, did you forget your compass? <laughs> By the way, that rookie hunter, you probably guessed it, was me. <laughs> I'm going to trust my compass by God's grace next time. And I want to encourage you all, too, to trust the compass of the gospel that has been given for us, not just for salvation, but for sanctification. Pray with me, dear saints. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Lord, we believe you started our faith. You sent the Spirit to awaken us. We believe that God has placed all things under your feet and appointed you to be head over everything for the church. You are governing over all things for our good and your glory and the glory of the Father. And we ask that you would help us remember that we need to trust the gospel. As Paul said, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Help us remember the gospel both for cleansing of guilt and for power and assurance and direction and protection. Father, through Christ we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take your hymn books, turn to number 678.